The text for the sermon of this morning is taken from Luke chapter 24, the verses 36 through 43. Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. Where God's word reads as follows. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. That's our text in response to the preaching of the gospel. We'll sing together Psalm 72, stanzas 1 through 4, as well as stanza 10. Psalm 72, after the preaching of God's Word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, over the last 100 years, plans for world peace have been many and unsuccessful. It was one year after the end of World War I that President Wilson arrived at the Paris Peace Conference with a peace plan for the world that specifically included the surrender of Germany's military equipment to the Allied forces. Along with a few other world leaders at that conference, he signed the Treaty of Versailles And that treaty would eventually enable dictators like Mussolini and Hitler to ascend to power, paving the way for the Second World War. After World War II, there were renewed plans for world peace, this time under the eye of the United Nations. But in the meantime, the peace of this world has been fractured by numerous subsequent conflicts. The question still arises, when will there be an end to war and an arrival of lasting world peace? Just this past week, President Obama said he came to Cuba to bury the last remnants of the Cold War after decades of conflict. Our Savior warned us about all these kinds of conflicts. He described one of the signs of the end of the age that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And the Apostle Paul, for his part, wrote that the government does not bear the sword for nothing, but must defend the peace and freedom of the land. There's a place then for just war but not in the kingdom of God. As the Lord would say to Pontius Pilate, 
My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. John 18, verse 36. The kingdom not of this world. In other words, the rule of Jesus Christ in our 21st century lives is not brought about by guns or bombs, but by the proclamation of peace. From the mouthpiece of our king. His rule of peace is expanding, even in the midst of wars and rumors of wars. And by God's grace, you and I have tasted and seen that peace, which was sealed for us on Easter Sunday. I proclaim to you the gospel of peace under the following theme. The risen Lord dispenses peace to his people. We see three things. First, the proclamation of peace. Secondly, the impediment, the obstacle to peace. Thirdly, the presence of peace. So on the evening of Easter Sunday, the disciples were assembled together in Jerusalem. It was a group consisting of the eleven which at that time was a technical term for the group, but that doesn't mean that all 11 were present. We know from John 20, for example, that Thomas was absent, as well as those who were with them. It was the disciples and another number of people. This assembly was brimming with excitement, busily talking about the events that had happened earlier that day. Two disciples that showed up later were bound for Emmaus, and they had quite the story to tell. They had aborted their trip to Emmaus, raced back to Jerusalem to pass on the news that the Lord had met up with them on the road, opened the Bible, showed them that all that's happened over the last three days was fulfillment of the teachings of Moses and of the prophets. And he even broke bread with them, and they recognized that it was him. And yet now, even before those two disciples have the chance to pass on this wonderful news, they find the group raving about the fact that the Lord has appeared, has risen, and has appeared to Simon Peter. You can appreciate that this news and what the two disciples then passed on prompted some intense dialogue. They are still trying to piece together this wonderful news that the Lord has indeed risen. Well, as they are wrestling with this, suddenly Jesus himself stands among them. One second he's not there, the next he is. And it's not that he walked through the door. John's gospel tells us that the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. But now, just as the Lord had suddenly disappeared while eating bread with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, now he appears right in the thick of the group, and he speaks, peace to you. What's the significance of these words? 
Some commentators say that this is little more than a friendly greeting, as if this is Jesus' way of merely saying, hello, it's good to see you again. And these and other explainers will point to the fact that peace is a typical greeting in the Middle East. It's like the Hebrew greeting, Shalom, Aleichem, peace be with you, still in use today. But when the risen Lord says these things, he's saying something far more than simply hello. This comes from the lips of someone whose name is on every page of the Old Testament and who himself knows the Old Testament. It's the King of Peace who on this day says this the same day he came out of the tomb. It's full of deep, comforting truth, in other words. So for this reason... And for the reason that every worship service, the Lord greets you and me in the same way with his peace, we need to get a handle on what Jesus is saying. Often when we today define the word peace, we say it's the absence of war, absence of disturbance, violence, or dissension. These are all found in the dictionary, and it's rather remarkable definition. Did you notice that this positive word is defined negatively by what it isn't? It's like describing health as the absence of illness. This gives you the impression that if the world had remained perfect, peace would not have had the opportunity through conflicts to reach its exalted status. But this is just nowhere close to how the Old Testament speaks about peace. It's far more meaningful. Well, that term, shalom, expressed wholeness, well-being, harmony, safety. It comes out, for example, in our reading from Ezekiel 34. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will cause showers to come down in their season. There will be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruits, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord. They shall dwell safely No one shall make them afraid. Peace, safety, security, blessing. Sounds a lot like paradise. Indeed, Adam and Eve enjoyed this kind of peace until they and all creation with them plummeted to the grip, plummeted into their death. Right at the fall into sin, we see the disappearance of true peace. Our first parents realized they were naked, so they quickly made coverings. And then they heard the Lord as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and they hid from him. They had forfeited their true sense of peace. Peace. 
And then, after God makes them fess up, he banished them from the safety and security and prosperity of the garden. Their sin deprived them of peace. In other words, it shattered the safety and security they had enjoyed with the Lord their God. And it resulted in insecurity, shame, and fear. Even hostility. Shortly after the fall, Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother. God's creatures bore the anger of God against sin. Now, this kind of thing highlights for us what true peace really looks like. Peace is a sense of completeness and safety in the Lord with nothing, including sin, standing between you and him. Which begs the question, how can anyone after Adam and Eve enjoy true peace? Well, only by the miracle of God's grace, promised already in paradise. God said that one day the power of darkness, insecurity, shame, and fear will be crushed by the seed of the woman. He will reconcile sinners with their God and restore peace. And that, kind, that promise was, and that reality was continually foreshadowed by the sacrifices and ceremonies of Allah. These reminded God's children that hostility had to be dealt with because it is an obstacle along the way of peace with God. God was always concerned to teach his people that peace was achievable. Teach them how that could be achievable. And he taught this by way of bloodshed. That their sins were forgiven, that they were reconciled with God. And based on that certainty, the priest would then bless God's people with the priestly blessing of number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yes. At the climax of the blessing, peace is expressed. As the last word, it sums up all the other aspects of the blessing. Peace. That's the gift of God. It's a full and true peace with God that impacts all of life. For when there is true peace with God, even in a broken world, there is knowledge that sins have been forgiven and God's grace is being enjoyed to the full. Israel then could, before Christ, enjoy the certainty of that peace when their sins by blood were atoned for. In short, congregation, Israel could enjoy God's covenantal peace. For that covenant, God's relationship of love with his people was valid and validated 
only through the shedding of blood. God's covenant then ushers in harmony and peace. And in that peace, his people could receive his blessings of safety and security. We are reconciled with God. As Ezekiel also wrote, thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the sovereign Lord. Now, in the presence of his disciples after his resurrection, Jesus proclaims peace to them. He had offered them peace before, you remember, when he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, John 14, 27. But the fact that he says it again on the other side of the grave is absolute and precious gospel. This was no ordinary greeting. Jesus, the Lamb of God, had just three days ago experienced God's wrath and his anger and his justice for our sake. Christ atoned for our sins. Sins of God's people reconciling us to the God we had offended with our sins. It was this Christ, betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, and deserted by the rest of his disciples, who now stands in their midst. They had broken all of their promises to stay with him to the very end. And yet now, congregation, notice there is no rebuke for their wrongdoing. He doesn't hold their sins against them. He returns with peace. Peace to you, Christ, the King of Peace assures them all is forgiven. My disciples, the fact that I am alive and standing here in this room means that my sacrifice for your sins was good. My sacrifice for your sins is finished. The peace of reconciliation is now imparted to you. The words of Isaiah 53 come to mind. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Beloved, Christ's proclamation of peace is at the very heart of the new covenant. Christ himself is the mediator of peace. Romans 4, verse 25 To 5 verse 1, he was delivered up because of our offenses, handed over to death, and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace to you, my disciples. You now enjoy the same peace foreshadowed in the sacrifices of the Old Testament and which is now permanently here through my victory. That is gospel news for sinners 
also for us as our Lord comes to us in the exact same way. In spite of the fact that we often turn our backs on him, scorn his love and affection, yet he still comes to us in peace. Yes, at the risk of stating the known, he comes to us, not the other way around. He doesn't wait for us to tidy things up in our life or deal with our doubts on our own or even crawl back to him begging for another chance. No. On his initiative, in his loving grace, he comes. He comes with his proclamation of peace. Even though he knows how we often receive his peace which is our second point, where we consider the impediment to peace. Indeed, it seems, congregation, that when the disciples first hear the risen Lord proclaim peace, they think little of it. Verse 37, they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. They were downright terrified so terrified and frightened that Christ's proclamation was totally lost on them. They thought a ghost had appeared among them, so they were scared out of their wits. Just imagine how terrified you would be if someone suddenly appeared out of nowhere in the middle of your living room. For the disciples... It was one thing to start to believe in the risen Christ, but it's altogether another to experience the reality of the risen Christ. They were scared half to death. Their thought that they were only, was that they were only seeing a spirit, not a risen Savior of flesh and blood. His word of peace doesn't seem to register, have much effect. At that moment, they are more invested, they're consumed with their own emotional state than in the glorious riches that Christ has just proclaimed. The gospel, however, is not a gospel of a ghost. The body that rose from the tomb on Easter Sunday morning was a marvelous body with supernatural power. It was now a glorified body. It was an imperishable, glorious, and powerful body as the Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44. It wasn't limited anymore as ordinary bodies are. Jesus was no longer limited to time and space His body had undergone a remarkable change to the point that he was not easily recognized and could suddenly appear and disappear in a surprising manner. Nevertheless, it was still a physical and very real body. Christ was present. And yet this reality doesn't lead our Savior to slam his disciples for their unbelief, 
No, he speaks to them now as he so often did before his death. Another giveaway. It's really him. He rebukes them gently. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? He admonishes them, yet with affection. The disciples were distressed. They were terrified. Their emotions were stirred up. They had all sorts of doubts come into their minds. And so the Lord challenges them to take stock of what was hindering them, impeding them from believing he had risen. He does this to help remove their impediments to receiving his proclamation of peace. He responds in great patience, also by saying, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And as he was saying this to them, he showed them his hands and feet, proof that he was no disembodied spirit, no illusion. Look, handle, my hands have knuckle bones and my feet have calluses, not to mention the wounds from, my, from the nails that pierced me. Yes, he shows them his hands and his feet and invites them to touch these to prove that the lamb that was slain is victorious. The wounds were still visible. It was Jesus himself. The Lord is alive and well. Luke goes on to mention that their terror and fright turned into joy and amazement. It all just seemed way too good to be true. For indeed, just as their emotions of terror and fear were impediments to understanding, to internalizing the proclamation of peace, so too their emotions of joy and amazement did the same. Luke mentions in verse 41 that they still did not believe for joy and marveled. The disciples were witnessing the most extraordinary thing they'd ever seen. The living body and soul of someone who had died and was buried. It really was too good to be true. Their joy overwhelmed their faith. Their emotions were an obstacle to receiving the gospel in true faith. Which makes perfect sense. Our belief, our beliefs are in the first place not based upon emotion. Our faith is a matter of sure knowledge of God's word and the confidence along with it that God's promises are also for me. But as the church father Augustine put it, while they were still flustered for joy, they were rejoicing and doubting at the same time. They were seeing and touching and scarcely believing. You see, it's not as if they were struggling to believe the resurrection because they rejected God's word or because they wouldn't accept the evidence. No, this was all entirely unexpected for them. 
He was really there, and yet he wasn't there, for he was so different. For the price of sin had been paid. The perishable has put on the imperishable and the mortal immortality. He stood on the other side of the grave and yet with them in the same room. They couldn't believe their eyes, you see. Well, then he seeks to remove all remaining doubt, to quiet the restless emotions of the disciples. He asks, have you any food here? They give him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is no ghost, no phantom, no spirit. He not only asks for food, he even eats it in our presence. The disciples could never again say that they had only seen a ghost. Jesus appeared in a body, one that could still enjoy the pleasures of eating and drinking. This meal is the final proof in Luke's gospel account for the fact of Christ's resurrection. As we said before, the character, the very heartbeat of our Savior hasn't changed. His heart still goes out to his people. He wants his people to accept his proclamation of peace, so he does whatever is necessary to remove the obstacles in the way to peace. Here our Lord takes his disciples from disbelief to faith. Christ appears not as a stranger, but as a familiar guest. He comes as one who is known and who feels at home with his own. He takes the raw emotional joy out of the disciples and transforms it into a robust and lasting joy of faith. Faith rooted in the peace of Christ. Which brings us to our final point this morning where we consider the presence of peace. We've said that peace to you is a proclamation. It's a declaration of God's favor. But its formulation makes it also sound like a bit of a wish. May peace be unto you. Now, do we have to understand it as one or the other, as a declaration or as a wish? Or can, it both, can it be both at the same time? The Greek, like our translation, has no verb here. All it says is peace to you or peace with you. It is important, I think, to understand Christ's words as both a declaration and a wish. As a declaration, on the one hand, it leaves no room for doubt. The peace that Christ speaks is not just a possibility, it is real, and it is a gift. Yet at the same time, Christ's words are a sure promise. Receiving that promise from Christ isn't something automatic. It's the response of faith that's needed. So in that sense, it's also a wish, 
prayer, may peace be unto you. When Christ declared it, just like when the minister pronounces God's blessing, it is a wish which is guaranteed to be heard when those who receive it trust in God. In both senses, Christ's peace remains. It's a gift declared by him that God looks upon his people as reconciled people. Wholeness and harmony and safety all exist once more. And it exists again for those particularly who receive it by faith. Christ's disciples could be absolutely certain, convinced, sure of it, that the peace of God was theirs. Christ's work of atonement is finished. God is not their opponent. He's their father in Christ who dispenses peace. Peace is very much present for God's people adopted into his covenant by grace. He wishes to confer his peace upon his people for the sake of Christ. So what does it look like then to enjoy that peace of Christ in your life? We know, of course, that the peace of Christ doesn't look like unending material or social prosperity As a matter of fact, you are often and especially called to enjoy the true peace of Christ in totally opposite circumstances. Just as Jesus Christ, your Lord, paid the ultimate price for peace between God and you, so each believer is called to imitate his Lord in word and deed. Peace for the children of God comes at a cost. Not only must we crucify our old nature with all its sinful desires and evil impulses, but we must also suffer for the sake of Christ. To be a student of Christ is to expect hardship as Christ did. But in the atmosphere, the environment of peace We need only think here, for example, of the Apostle Paul, a man who was stripped, beaten, and severely flogged, tossed into prison as punishment for proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Yet this very same person was heard in prison, praying and singing hymns and praises to God. Why? Philippians 4. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul was brought low, thereby learned to be content by faith, that the peace of God was proclaimed to him as well, that he lived in its presence by faith. That's what led led him so often to speak in his letters of peace. He even identifies it as a fruit of the Spirit, 
who works peace in the hearts of believers. And yes, still today, that's a matter of fact. The Lord says in his word that peace is for all for whom Christ died. That peace is necessary for we all face struggles and hardships. Our three sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh are working hard to lead us astray, to make us give up. But if you consider the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 24, for example, you find God's assurance that this peace is, again, most certainly for you. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. God will do it. He is your Savior, and he takes it upon himself to lead you along the pathway of peace. Peace that understands and clings to a reality beyond the pain and the anguish of this life. Yes, true Christian peace congregation worked out by the Spirit points to God's end time victory over sin and evil through Jesus Christ. At that glorious resurrection, all believers will experience full peace. Unbelievable. Too good to be true. Just like how the disciples felt about the resurrection of their Lord. Yet even though we know he arose and what joy that truly gives, let us never lose a sense of the unbelievable ourselves. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. We can anticipate it. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, with all the depth that the peace of Christ gives you, may you never lose a sense of the wonder at the absolutely unbelievable. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. It is too good to be true, but it is true. God's peace be with you. That brings wholeness, safety, security to even the most restless soul. Always remember the Prince of Peace. Believe his proclamation and live under his reign of peace, looking forward to the day when that kingdom of peace comes in all of its fullness and power. Amen.